Welcome to our guest segment. He's one of our all-time favorite guests because you have told us you love to hear all the latest information and news about Scientology. His blog is TonyOrtega.org, or you can simply do a Google search for The Underground Bunker. Every day, he posts a new article covering a story about Scientology. And uh, Tony Ortega, good to have you back, my friend. Always good to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Thank you. You too. Uh, do you have a little cold today? You see your voice sounds a little different. No, uh, I'm fine. I, I I think you should be hearing me okay. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, I was I was wondering maybe you had a cold or you just got finished smoking a Cuban cigar. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to start. I, I, I told my producer to ask you about this. Um, Netflix, um, Sons of Sam. I want to, and I, she told me what you said. And I said, that's okay. Let's still bring them on. I want to talk. I want to start by talking about that. So there's this Netflix documentary called Sons of Sam. And it is, uh, the story of, of a reporter by the name of Maury Terry, who claimed in a book that was released uh, a handful of years ago that it wasn't just one killer, um, it wasn't just Berkowitz, son of Sam, but there were multiple people involved. He then even tried to connect it to uh, the world of the cults, including then he tried to connect it to Scientology and even tried to make connections to Charles Manson. And I thought this was just very interesting because I had never heard this before. It was a very well done documentary. I mean, it's very interesting to watch. I'm not sure how much of it I believed. Uh, what what do you make of these claims of? of Scientology being connected in any way to the son of Sam. Right. So, you know, anytime somebody does that and they put Scientology into their show, my, you know, I start getting inundated. (laughs) Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And um, the mention of Scientology is interesting. The mention of the process church is interesting and it brings up some things from the seventies. Um, the problem is that Maury Terry's theories were ludicrous. And I'm sorry if there are people out there that are fans of his and love his books and enjoyed the series, but, um, this was a very, uh, well put together, um, documentary, but it was essentially dishonest. I mean, they did include the police figures who did. It's kind of funny. You're, you're going along and they're putting together all this creepy cult stuff. And then all of a sudden they have a cop on. He says something completely logical and doesn't, he doesn't even fit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the problem, the problem, the main problem that Maury Terry had was that the ballistics are why, you know, they keep, they keep acting in the show 
Like, why are the police so convinced it was one guy? Why are the police? They never mentioned the reason the police were convinced was because of the ballistics. One firearm was used for those crimes. Now, I don't know what, Jim, you probably know a lot more about firearms than I do, but, you know, people don't share their handguns. Like, okay, you go commit a couple murders and then give the gun to Bob and he'll shoot a couple people and then give the, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So the, the problem with the series is it wanted to, the series wanted to make a big deal about some completely tangential relation to Scientology and Process Church and Charles Manson. And so it played down what really matters, things like ballistics and reasons why the police focused on Berkowitz. And so, it, you know, and, and to the show's credit, if you stick with the series and you get to the end, even the people who had been, like, speaking up for Maury Terry early in the series are just shaking their heads and saying he was just obsessed with stuff he couldn't prove. It was a fascinating documentary. I almost, at the end, felt sorry for Maury Terry because I felt like he wanted this to be true to the extent that he kind of gave up his whole life to try to make it. Uh, be to be true and almost reminded me of that movie with Russell Crowe, A Beautiful Mind, where he became so engrossed, like in his own view, that he just couldn't see the truth of what what was going on. Yeah. And, and, and look, he he got to put out a book. He got a certain amount of publicity during his life. I, I really fault Netflix that they would put something like this on the air and, and treat these you know, not very credible theories as if they're credible. And, um, you know, it, I think there's so, so much, there's so many channels, they have so much content to put on and they know that cults are popular. More and more, we're going to see stuff like this that just doesn't hold water, but that gets people excited. Yeah. Now, now Scientology, um, there was a loose connection that actually is true between Scientology and Manson. Is, isn't that right? That I yeah. mean, not that not that he oh, yeah, no, not no, that he no used question. Scientology like as part of his his crime spree. Manson separate, you know, like let's close the book now on Sons of Sam. We're done with that. But now talking about mass murderers, a serial killer like Manson, he actually did, I guess, have some connection or, or personally uh, use some of Scientology. Is that right? Absolutely. He, what happened was, you know, Manson spent most of his adult life in prison. And he was in and out of prison, you know, since he was a teenager. And during one of his many stays in prison, he, you know, was in a cell with a guy that was a Scientologist who taught him auditing. And there's no question that for several years while he was in prison in Washington State, Charles Manson learned auditing. He learned Scientology. Now, the Church of Scientology is very fast to point out that this was not done through the Church of Scientology, and so they will tell you that Manson was never an actual member of the Church of Scientology. But there's no question that Manson steeped himself in L. Ron Hubbard, you know, technology and learned the, the auditing techniques. And then when he was released from that prison uh, stint is when he went to San Francisco and right around, right in time for the summer of love and all that, and started creating the family. This is all really well told in Jeff Gwynn's book, which came out a few years ago about Manson's excellent book. And Jeff went into the Scientology angle in a way that hadn't been done before. So Manson goes to San Francisco 
And he had, the other big influence on his early life was Andrew Carnegie, uh, believe it or not. So he combined what he had learned about Andrew Carnegie, some of the stuff he'd learned in Scientology, and he came up with his own thing, his own pattern, to start attracting these young girls into what became the family. So there's no question that Scientology had some influence on Manson and, and the family. Yeah, that that is fascinating. And of course, you know, in fairness to Scientology, uh, you know, like you said, he was also a follower of Dale Carnegie. Uh, some people use Christianity or the Muslim religion to do terrible things as well. But it, it is interesting that there was that connection between uh, Manson uh, in practicing Scientology. I saw on your blog this uh, story about Leia Remini. Now, she's no longer doing Scientology, the aftermath, but you're saying that there's still like an animosity there where she's still being pursued by private investigators. Is that right? Well, this, this, uh, I wrote this for the daily beast. And then I also put some of that in my own blog. Um, uh, the tracking, the the stalking that was being done of her, this occurred uh, three and a half years ago. Oh, okay. Why, between the between the second and third seasons of Scientology and Aftermath, she was telling me about it at the time. She was filming Second Act with Jennifer Lopez in Manhattan, and and she was telling me, Tony, there's these private eyes follow us everywhere, and she and I managed with some help to to identify this guy in a silver van and Texas plate that was not only tailing her everywhere, but almost caused an accident with them. And we identified him as this uh, retired New York Police Department detective named Yanti Mike Green. And I confronted him at that point uh, three and a half years ago. I got him on the phone and I said, listen, um, I hear you told somebody that you've been following uh, Leah Remedy for the Church of Scientology. And he denied it. And he said he didn't. He said he didn't even know who Leah Remedy was. And I said, "Come on, a New York detective doesn't know King of Queens. Give me a break." So uh, when I wrote that story three years ago, I didn't name him at that time. So now the new thing, Jim, is that there's this weird, unrelated lawsuit, completely unrelated. But in that lawsuit, uh, Mike Green is accused of various things, and the people suing him managed with a court order to get a hold of his iCloud text. Uh, from his iPhone. Wow. And it includes, it includes a lot of evidence for the law. For, they're suing him for a different reason and they got a lot of evidence for that. But they weren't, they ha- had no idea that his iCloud text would also include all the texts he was sending between all the different private investigators while they were stalking, uh, Leah Remini and JLo. Wow. And I found out about that. They finally, they put it into the court record. I grabbed it. And it's, it's just fascinating because we know that these private investigators follow them, but it's fascinating to actually see their texts as they're, descri- as they're describing where they're parking, who they're following, which car they're looking for, comments they're making about J-Lo and, and Leah Remini. It's all in there, and, it's, it's, it's just, and, and Leah herself is just really stunned uh, because the text revealed that they had, they had like spies on the movie set they had spies at the Kevin Can Wait uh, series. She was also filming at the time. Uh, you know, I mean, this is the length these people will go. Now, what was it they were? You've talked about this before, where um, once you become, uh, what's the term they use when you're out and and you're no longer um, 
officially part of Scientology? Is like a suppressive. Well, Scientology will call you a Scientology. Yeah, suppressive person or Scientology will call you an apostate. So, so, but this is part of Ron Hubbard's sort of his original um, manifesto that once somebody leaves Scientology, in particular, if they are like in this case, you know, publicly speaking against it. They are now fair game that that's officially. But this might be the first time that we actually have like actual proof, because otherwise it's like, oh, people are following me. And, and people, you know, some people might say, well, you know, who who knows that it's actually, you know, someone on behalf of Scientology that's following you or not, or or, or is there money being paid? But but what is their reason for for having people followed? Is is it harassment? Uh, to to cause them fear, or are they actually trying to like get dirt on them, like maybe get something that they could use to blackmail them with, or say, hey, if you don't shut up, we're going to expose the secret we know about you. You're absolutely right, Jim. It all comes from L. Ron Hubbard and the policies he wrote, particularly between 1955 and 1967. During that period, Hubbard's biggest concern was that. He felt other people were stealing his ideas and were, you know, there were various splinter groups and people would be in Scientology for a while and then leave and say, Hey, I've got a better, I've got, I can do a, 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 even better than how Elrond did. And he wanted to clamp down on that. And so he, he wrote these policies about how to destroy enemies through frivolous lawsuits, through following people, digging up dirt on them. So Scientology to this, and he died in 1986, and, and they can't change his policies. So to this day, Scientology follows that same playbook. And so their thinking is, while well, Leah Remini's out there telling our secrets, we need to do, we need to do what Elrond tells us, and that is dig up dirt on her, intimidate her, frighten her, so that and it usually works, Jim. Let me tell you, a lot of people who leave Scientology think about speaking up, uh, speaking up. As soon as they realize that private investigators are now swarming around them, and PIs will often do this in a way that, that to make you know that you're being followed, people get frightened into silence. It, it, the reason why Scientology does this over and over again is because most of the time it works. And also, there has been uh, plenty of evidence of them doing this. Um, this. This is unusual in that it's a celebrity being followed and that we actually have the texts of the private investigators. But this is not the first time that we've had texts um, spelling out fair game. In fact, a few years ago, um, Mike Rinder uh, made available texts from his uh, following John Sweeney, who was a BBC reporter. Um, so we've seen these kind of things before, and fair game has been documented very well. But it's just unusual to see people like Leah Remini and JLo being targeted and and such uh, solid evidence of it. Is there is there information in these texts that prove that? They were being also paid by Scientology. Um, the, I mean, it must have cost a lot of money to have multiple private investigators following them around the country. They talk about it, and one of the one of the things that uh, people are really remarking about these texts is that there's an early conversation between this detective Green and this guy Saul Roth, who's a retired uh, Nassau County uh, police officer. And um, Ross pulls up and says, okay, what's the job? And, and, and Green describes well, that we're following their revenue. And, and then he says, well, why? And then he does a Google search, and, and they, they soon start talking about Scientologists. And then Green says to him, 
Yeah. Word is they want to kill her. Wow. And yeah, I mean, so here's a guy that's in the, the that's in the text message. The text message that's says in that the text message is a text of the one former cop and a former cop is yeah. Word is they want to kill her. So he's being paid fifty dollars an hour to follow the remedy around all night, and he apparently thinks it's to help the Church of Scientology that wants to end her life. Now I don't know if that was blather. Uh, we didn't see any other evidence of that in the text. But it kind of gives you the mentality of this cop who's being paid to follow her around. Yeah, I mean, that would that that seems like a crime right there. Just if he had that in his mind and was following her, it almost sounds like there's a crime. I mean, more than a civil situation, a a crime that should be investigated, in my view. Uh, But that that is fascinating. Now, let's shift gears and talk about uh, Danny Masterson. So the Danny Masterson case has been stalled due to COVID, but it's picked up steam again. Is there any idea of when there might be a trial? Well, since we last talked, Jim, I went out to Los Angeles and I was actually in the courtroom when there was a four-day preliminary hearing and the three women uh, victims got to testify live in court for the first time. And let me tell you what an amazing four days that was. Wow. Because not only... Did we hear these horrific allegations of violent, forcible rape uh, from Danny Masterson from these three women? But the judge allowed discussion of Scientology because these three women were Scientologists at the time. They're not today, but um, they cited their fear of Scientology and its rules about you're not supposed to turn in a fellow Scientologist, you're not supposed to go to the police, as reason why it had taken them so long to come forward. And when she, when the judge, at the end of the preliminary hearing, she found that there was probable cause to hold a trial, and she specifically cited Scientology. So trial is tentatively scheduled for November. I have reason to believe it might get pushed back to like January, but it's coming. It's coming, you know, relatively quickly. And this, and the same judge who presided over the preliminary hearing will preside over the trial. And, you know, the preliminary hearing is a very narrowly focused hearing with just three witnesses. This will be a weeks long trial with many more witnesses. And this judge has already allowed Scientology to be a big part of it. So the trial is just going to be really bad news, both for Masterson and for the Church of Scientology. I mean, if he's convicted, he's looking at 45 years of prison, uh, life in prison. Do you think this will be a trial that would be televised and be a big media spectacle? I don't think it'll be. uh, I don't think there'll be cameras in the courtroom. She has not allowed them. uh, She did not allow them in the preliminary hearing. I think she's sensitive to this is Judge Charlene Olmedo. And let me tell you, she was sharp. She was on top of every issue. She was admonishing both sides. This this woman has studied this case. And she I think she's concerned about the privacy of these women. I mean, two of them have not been named. And cameras would, you know, not be you know, conducive to that. So I don't think the trial will be uh, there will be cameras in the courtroom. Uh, but there was plenty of media. I was not the only reporter. There were six or seven of us in that courtroom. And lots of coverage of that preliminary hearing, and there'll be a lot more coverage of the trial. Now, isn't there also like an associated civil matter regarding all of this that is kind of on hold as well? Is that right? 
Yeah, it, it's it's in an interesting stage right now because these three women and a fourth woman who was not a Scientologist sued Danny in 2019 before he had been charged. They were frustrated waiting for charges. So they sued Danny and the Church of Scientology, not not over the rapes, but over the, what they say were a couple of years of harassment once they came forward. Once they came forward to the LAPD, they say they've been surveilled, hacked, um, their houses have been broken into, their pets have been killed. Uh, and so they put together this, this big lawsuit about, against the church, against Danny, against Scientology leader David Miscavige. And what the church did was they've done this now three times in lawsuits. They, they, they go into the court and say, look, these were former Scientologists. They signed contracts when they got services in the church, which required them to take any grievance, not to court, but to an internal form of religious arbitration. And the court bought it. The court said, yeah, you're right. You can't be in court. And they, they denied them a right to trial and forced them into religious arbitration. The problem is, that this religious arbitration is not independent arbitration. It's it's a panel of Scientologists in good standing. But also what their lawyers are pointing out is they're no longer Scientologists. How can you how can you make three former members of a church uh, submit themselves to basically a religious ritual? They have so they have appealed to the California State Supreme Court and and I think the timing was very interesting. Right after all that horrific testimony came out of the preliminary hearing, the Supreme State Supreme Court um, granted their request for review and sent the case back down to the appellate court and, and asked the trial judge to show cause. So they're getting an appeal, uh, which was a long shot. But I, I have a feeling that the testimony that came out in court about these horrific rapes convince the Supreme Court that, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should rethink this arbitration thing. So that's that's going on right now. It's an interesting precedent, and uh, there should be some sort of uh, action in that probably within a month. And in fairness to uh, Danny Masterson, apparently he's pleading not guilty. He denies all of this, uh, innocent until proven guilty, all of that stuff to uh, keep us uh, out of lawsuits here. Tell me about this is hilarious. This uh, picture you have uh, a guy, the the, uh, the the Texas story here with the big cowboy hat. Scientology is sending out a deluge of mailers uh, to prepare to open its uh, biggest uh, Texas location. So will there be like free T-bone steaks and ammunition or how are they going to get the Texans uh, into this? That's a great question. They're, what they're doing is um, they already have an what's called an ideal org. They, they take a normal org, which is their word for church, and they spruce it up, spend some several million dollars. Um, and make it into more of a gleaming museum kind of thing, and then oh, have a big grand opening, and David Miscavige flies in. But they don't like outsiders, and so they, they restrict it just to Scientologists. And they, they put up barriers, and they shut down streets. Dave just wants to have a party with the locals. So they, they had it. The newest one will be in Austin, Texas. They've been working on it for years. They were almost ready to open it when the pandemic hit. And so I think they're really itching to get this one open uh, now that things are getting better. So I don't have a date yet. I don't know which Saturday it'll be, but it'll be in the next few Saturdays or Sundays. And so they uh, to get people ready, they've sent out a ton of new mailers to get people interested in Scientologists, to get the, just a Scientologist, 
you get them interested in working there. And so, yeah, they've been using this Texas iconography of like big texts from the state fair and uh, things like that. But, um, and you know, they, they do talk every, every ideal org tries to have some local flavor. You know what I mean? Yeah. To try to appeal to the local people. Now, Texas is kind of an interesting state because Austin is almost like Silicon Valley. There, that's really become a very, um, you know, a stronghold for uh, people that have like left California and places like that. And then I saw this um, video here. I guess this is from Austin, the Austin Scientology. It says uh, wild video uh, pressured people pressured to donate tens of thousands of dollars. And the person standing in this uh, screenshot, it looks like a televangelist. This woman, she's got her her arm up in the air and a microphone. Uh, What's going on with this? Yes. Well, one of the parts of these ideal orgs is. Um, they spend millions on a building. They spend millions more on renovation. And Miscavige, the leader, tries to get all the locals to pay for it. So for years, they will have fundraisers pressuring the local Scientology. And, and the thing is, there's very little Scientology in Texas. There are very few Scientologists in, in Austin or Dallas or Houston. And so um, those, those, those small groups of people are under huge pressure to raise millions of dollars. So what they do is they have these parties, they have these rallies, and, and that's a video from one. And, and that's just restricted to the most upper level locals, the people they know they can get more money from. And they're basically all locked in that room. And that woman is doing everything she can to pressure people to turn over tens of thousands of dollars right there on the spot to raise their amount of money to get up higher. And this was from a few years ago. It was just leaked to me. And, but I thought the timing was great because, um, that video was from 2015 and then they kept raising funds until 2017. And now finally in 2021, that building is going to open, but it gives you some idea of what Scientologists go through and why so many of them have left. And it's just the extreme fundraising, the extreme pressure. This is something Paul Haggis talked about in the movie going clear, how good they are at convincing you. Oh, come on, just another 10,000, just another 20,000. Yeah. And uh, I, I, this other story, too, um, speaking of money, really caught my attention. Um, Scientology apparently cashed in with a lot of uh, paycheck protection program loans. I mean, everybody cashed in on those loans. I saw the story where this televangelist out of uh, Dallas area got a bunch of money and then there was a new jet purchased at the same time. So this is not unique to Scientology, but it, it is kind of odd only because they have so much money that they have to like find buildings to buy to sort of like, you know, it's like sitting on, on, on piles and piles and piles of money. Uh, how, how much did they get? Can, can we know that? And it also says in your article here that a lot of the top Scientologists also got bailouts personally in addition to the organization. Right. Well, one thing I keep in mind, look, this is a pand- unprecedented pandemic, unprecedented hit to our economy. Everyone was scrambling. And yeah, a lot of money got thrown out there. You know, and some of it was probably not wisely given out. But what makes it kind of galling with Scientology is not that, look, they have payroll. I mean, most, right, Jim, most of these were companies they needed help with payroll, right? But the thing about Scientology is they don't pay their workers anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the irony. If that. they pay them anything, they... Right, if they pay them anything, they pay them pennies. And so, you know, why is Scientology qualifying 
to save its payroll when it doesn't have one. Well, that's the so ultimate that's payroll protection. People- Isn't that the ultimate payroll protection exactly. that you don't have a payroll? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- that is ironic. So between the orgs, between the orgs and the schools and the, and the rehabs, uh, Daily Dot did a good piece, and they've been keeping track of it. I think it's up to at least ten million now that Scientology got through its various organizations. And then I did my that separate story where I looked at some individual Scientologists, some of whom are wealthy. So you know, you have somebody like you know David Minkoff, who's this doctor. Well, one time had his license suspended for a year because of his his role uh, in the death of Lisa McPherson. Um, he gets a bunch of money, and then his daughter, his daughter is Rebecca Minkoff, the handbag designer who's a lifelong Scientologist, and she gets like one and a half million in PPP loans or something like that. Wow! So you know, I just went through a bunch of different people that are associated with Scientologists to see how much money they got, and they got quite a lot. And and a lot of that money, this is what people don't understand. The idea is, I think, if I understand it right, that if people do certain things and then prove that they've done it, that money gets forgiven in the end. So we call it loans, but it, it actually would not get paid back if uh, things go as as the program is outlined. Sort of becomes like a, like a forgiven loan in the end. So these could largely end up being grants. Uh, to these individuals and to Scientology. We'll close it out with this question about uh, the wife of David Miscavige, Shelly Miscavige. There's still, you've talked about this for years with us, kind of the mystery of like where she is. And I guess there's a story in your blog about maybe she's at a certain compound being, being held there or, or at least, um, you know, kind of kept out of the public eye at that place. Right. I've, I've got several independent, lines of evidence which all point to a particular small mountain compound above Los Angeles in the San Bernardino Mountains where we believe she's been held out of sight since the late summer 2005. The only time she's been let out, she got to go to her father's funeral in the summer of 2007. Um, And then I've talked to a woman who saw somebody at the nearby town of Crestline in 2015 and 2016 who we think may have been Shelly when she was allowed to go to the grocery store. I'm taking that sighting seriously. I think it probably was Shelly. But basically, David Miscavige has banished his wife to a small, super-secret Scientology compound for more than 15 years now. And, uh, you know, John Brousseau, who was once David Miscavige's brother-in-law, said on Leah Remini's show, he will keep her there until she dies. And it's just amazing that a man like David Miscavige can get away with something like that. And where is where does Miscavige primarily live? I imagine he probably has homes around the world, but is he primarily in the Clearwater area? Is that sort of his home base? Well, this was interesting because he and Shelley used to live at this large base near Hemet, California, called either Int Base or Gold Base. And they had some really lavish uh, quarters there. He had this massive office building built just for his own use. Um, but he abandoned that place uh, six or seven years ago. And I was trying to figure out, so where's his primary residence now? I mean, the people that sued him in that lawsuit two years ago, they couldn't find him to serve him. We just really weren't sure where he was. Uh, he used to have an apartment in Hollywood. I don't know that he does anymore. He used to have an apartment in Clearwater. But it 
now the church itself is saying that he has moved to Clearwater. I think where he's probably living is in that giant flag building, also known as the superpower building, that has an air bridge to the Fort Harrison Hotel. And the reason I think that is that each Friday night, he has been spotted at the Fort Harrison for the graduation ceremonies. And he also presided over the New Year's Eve party there. Uh, and this was reported in Scientology's own publications. And one of the attorneys for Miscavige said this in a court document that he's now a Florida resident. Hmm. So that's that's kind of amazing that we know that so well. And I would say if anybody's in Clearwater, keep your eye out for the guy. Well, everybody's moving to Florida, so I guess that's no surprise. Uh, one last thing here, I, I guess, because of an email question that came in. Any new? Someone wants to know any updates or news on Tom Cruise and, and Scientology. Just that, you know, every just be aware, every six months or so, you're going to see a tabloid story claiming that he's leaving and returning to Surrey or Canada or whatever. But all the evidence I say, I see points to the opposite. He's more dedicated to Scientology than ever. The year before the pandemic hit in 2019, he actually went to two major events that year. I've never seen him do two in one year. And he took his kids, Isabella and Connor, to one of those two Scientology events that year. I've never seen him do that. So the evidence points to him being more dedicated than ever. But these tabloids want this story of him leaving to be true. And so you'll keep hearing it. But I don't see any evidence of it. I, you know, he actually built a new condo that's a five-minute walk from Dave's place in Clearwater. So that's how dedicated he is. So I, I just, uh, I think the guy's a true believer. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious too. Um, you know, at some point, uh, I, I was over there when that was being built. That was that re rehab was going on on that building. Um, I want to go over there. Yeah. I, I had seen this story where there's uh, a guy who's doing a tour of the the campus yeah. there, and he's actually dressed up yeah. as L. Ron Hubbard in doing this tour, and apparently has infuriated the the, the local people there. Uh, but I I thought that would be kind of fun to go, uh, maybe do some video and 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 meet this guy and and walk around on his tour with him. Have you heard about that? I think he I think he has stopped. I think you know he came under a lot of pressure. I think people who get involved in this kind of stuff don't realize just how serious Scientology is about this kind of thing. You know, yeah. they kind of take it on kind of lighthearted. They all make fun of Scientology and they went after him and he quit. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> it called, they call it poking the bear. I think in, in some parts <laughs> when you, when you're over there, you know, walking around pretending to be, uh, I, I thought it was hilarious when I, I read the story, but uh, in any case, the website is, TonyOrtega.org. Every day there's a new story there about Scientology. So the best way is to like, if you have an RSS reader, just subscribe to it. So every day, like I get the story every single day that is posted. And uh, Tony, anything else you want to tell people about the, anything you have uh, coming up or, or any other website addresses or information? Just come on down at 7 a.m. Eastern every day. We've got a new story. We've got a great commenting community. It's really uh, traffic's higher now than ever, and we've got a you know, just fantastic commenting group. There are people in there who were in Scientology for 30, 40 years and know far more about it than I do. So the conversations are incredible. Please come and join in. Yeah, TonyOrtega.org. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. It's always fun, and uh, we'll have you back in a few months. God bless, sir. 
Thank you very much, Jim. All right. Talk to you next time. Wow. I always enjoy talking to that guy. And I, I'll tell you, you guys love the topic of Scientology because every time we do a show on this, it's like the downloads go through the roof. Uh, it's just fascinating. I don't know. I'm just I I can't get enough of it. I, I ever since that Leia Remini show. But even before that, I, I've just been kind of mesmerized by all of this. Uh, just a fascinating, fascinating um story to follow all the different things happening with Scientology. It's certainly uh, easy to keep a daily blog going with uh, all these news stories and court cases and controversies and celebrities and on and on and on. Uh, wow. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Happy Father's Day again to everybody. And uh, remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.